our refuge and strength. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very sufficient help in troubles. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth change and the mountains totter into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though mountains shake it with surging water, there is a river whose streams gladden the city of God, the holiest of the dwellings of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she will not be made to totter, and God will help her at daybreak. Nations roar, kingdoms shake. It's just the way it is. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our high stronghold. Come see the works of Yahweh, who has placed desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts off the spear. The wagons of war he burns with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our high stronghold. Selah. God, give us faith to cling to your word. And Lord, now as we Open your word to learn. Would you open our hearts to you? Do a work through your Holy Spirit that is beyond the capacity of either speaker or listener. Perform a miracle in our midst this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To be seated. If you'll open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. going to follow up with the message that began last week in discussing the household. And mostly, well, almost entirely, discuss what Paul has to say to the husbands. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm having some trouble pulling my notes up. Now, see, my dad's here, and he told me this would happen. He was very concerned about this one day. This is the first time ever, Dad, this has happened. Well, let's see if it's going to happen or not. (laughs) I'm I'm fairly confident we can get through it one way or the other, but but let's see if this is going to happen or not. So let me read beginning in, uh, in verse 22. Sorry about that. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So this is an extraordinarily rich text that you would need weeks and weeks and weeks to unpack and don't have that time. So uh, if you'll come back, men, on September 22nd, which is a Wednesday, we have our men's meeting, and we're going to unpack this further at that time. What I think Paul's doing in this text, because there's so much going on here, trying to pick out kind of the, the higher order of things, And I think one of the things we should be wise to notice is that Paul is attempting to address two particular husbandly sins, which he sees kind of functioning both inside and outside the church. So two different kinds of husbandly sins. And the first one is disregard for the wife. Disregard for the wife. There's a, there's a, British commentator who's, who's kind of uh, on the left side of things uh, theologically. So he's kind of two levels of, of left because he's theologically left and he's British, which is also kind of a left. So, uh, but, but it was interesting to see what he had to say about the cultural context in which this passage was written. Listen, listen to how he describes the cultural approach, the cultural thinking about women. So he's asking Okay, these Christians in Ephesus received this letter from Paul. What's their default? Like, what have they been raised to think about women? So here's how he describes it. The Jews had a low view of women. In the Jewish form of morning prayer, there was a sentence in which a Jewish man every morning gave thanks that God had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. In Jewish law, a woman was not a person, but a thing. She had no legal rights whatsoever. She was absolutely in her husband's possession to do with as he willed. The position was worse in the Greek world. The whole Greek way of life made companionship between man and wife next to impossible. The Greek expected his wife to run his home to care for his legitimate children but he found his pleasure and his companionship elsewhere. In Greece, home and family life were near to being extinct, and fidelity was completely non-existent. In Rome, in Paul's day, the matter was still worse. The degeneracy of Rome was tragic. It is not too much to say that the whole atmosphere of the ancient world was adulterous. The marriage bond was on the way to complete breakdown. So you've got these folks in Ephesus. 
Paul's writing the words that we read at the beginning of this message. He's saying, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And we can see that one of the sins, one of the errors Paul is attempting to deal with here is just disregard for the wife, which was utterly common in both Jewish and Gentile cultures. So I came up with a list of synonyms that I want you to think of when you think of disregard. That would include dismissiveness, resentment, selfishness, superiority, chauvinism, thoughtlessness, emotional indifference. It's essentially the lack or the opposite of what Paul commands later in the text. It's, it's the opposite of cherish, which Paul commands, right? So there is this chronic sort of man-husband sin, and that husband sin is just a disregard for your wife. And to deal with this particular sin, Paul introduces or unfolds or reintroduces the doctrine of one fleshness, let's call it. The doctrine of one fleshness. Look at verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. I would call this Adam's doctrine, because Adam's the first one to say it. When God created Eve, he said, this is me. That's what he said. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And this doctrine of this is meanness, this doctrine of one flesh, it produces affection for that other person. It produces a sense of cherishing. And that's why in verse 29, Paul says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So I'd like to think of the one fleshness idea as something that originates in Adam. And we see that Paul is using it the way he uses this, because Paul talks about being one body a lot. He uses it in the church too. And the goal, whenever he talks about that, is always to stir up affection for one another. So there's this one husband sin that is a lack of affection, a kind of disregard for the wife, resentment, selfishness, dismissiveness, thoughtlessness, emotional indifference. There's just this sort of lack of cherishing, this lack of affection. And Paul says the way to deal with this is to look at your wife and understand, that's me. That's a part of me. That's a, less, that's a better looking, less hairy, less smelly part of me. Like, like that's me. Like, it, and, and Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, believes that if you can regard your wife as you, you will take better care of her and cherish her and love her with affection and interest more than if you did not see her that way. So that's one of the sins that is a husbandly sin that Paul seems to be dealing with. And then the, the, the second one is a disorder. So the first one is disregard for your wife. And the second is a disordered regard for your wife. So the one is thinking too little of her, and the other is thinking too much of her. So, so the second sin Paul is dealing with, I'm just describing as a disordered love or a disordered regard for the wife. So the idea is, is that it's no guarantee 
that if you have affection for your wife, you'll be a good husband. That is actually not guaranteed. And the very first husband shows us this. He went into poetic, romantic language when he woke up from the sleep that God had put him under, he woke up and he was in love. Like he, he said, this is me. And the Bible teaches us that this, this is meanness is a affection stirring perspective. The problem is, is that having affection for your wife is actually not a guarantee of being a good husband. And we see that with Adam himself. So Paul introduces a second doctrine you're going to see in a moment they're not really separate. But he introduces a second idea, and that is headship. Right? So back, look back at verse 29 and 30. Uh, sorry, not 29 and 30. The very beginning of this passage where Paul says, for the husband is the head of the wife. Okay, so you've got these two errors. Adam, we can look to Adam for the affection piece. But we can also look to Adam and say, there's a limit to how much good affection can do without something else. And what's the something else? Authority. So there's essentially two doctrines that are one doctrine on display here. And that is, you are one body. That's Paul's telling husbands, that's your body. Love it. Love that. But then he's saying, and you're the head of it. What was the breakdown? Why wasn't Adam's affection for his wife sufficient? Well, I mean, we could talk a long time about that, right? But it's certainly on display. So what we would say about Christ being superior to Adam as the new and perfect Adam is that Christ had both affection and authority in his dealings with his bride. He had both affection fondness and a cherishing, and he was also wise. Another way to say this is how Paul says this, where he, he, Jesus not only cherished his bride, he nourished his bride. That's what Paul says. No one ever hated his own body, but loves it and cherishes it and nourishes it. So we've got two potential errors. One is to just be disregarding of your wife, dismissive, maybe even resentful, just discounting her, just not, not having any real affection that you should have. You know, we've, I think we've swung the pendulum a little too far when we talk about how, you know, well, it doesn't matter if you're in love. It, it, what, it, what matters is if you're committed. Like, absolutely. Except Paul wants us to be in love with our wives. It's, I think the mistake we're trying to correct is that you can't use my in-loveness, my, my current feelings, as the, the kind of decider of whether I'm going to stay married or not, right? But to, to, we can overly dismiss the, the feelings of affection and cherishing for our wives and say those don't matter. That's not what the text teaches. And that's certainly not Christ-like husbanding, right? Because Christ isn't, isn't un-in-love with his bride. So he's dealing with this issue of disregard, but he's also dealing with this issue. We can, call, we can call the first one Adam's doctrine, and then we can call the second one Adam's sin, which is disordered regard. He wasn't a leader. 
had all the affection in the world, he was a failed head. So now we have this thing. We all do it as Christians. I think it's a modern thing. But when we hear things like this where there's two sins described, we tend to think that we're, all on, we're, we're either on one side or the other. So I'm either struggling with disregard or disordered regard. And I would just, I'm going out of my way to tell you, don't think that way about this. Because we have examples in scripture of people who had both problems. Um, Abraham, on the front end of the story of Abraham, he is showing disregard for his wife. He treats her like property. He, he, he literally abandons her twice. So there's Abraham's disregard for his wife. We also see Abraham showing too much regard for his wife. The text actually says, I think it's Genesis 16.2, maybe, don't hold me to that, where it says, because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife. Like there's this idea that Abraham essentially listened to Sarah when he should not have listened to Sarah. He gave her the wheel. So, so men, it's not, I wish it were as simple as saying, well, I'm, I'm either a disregarder or an over-regarder, but it's not. I think, I think we can be a disregarder on Tuesday and an over-regarder on Thursday. I, I don't think this is one of those things where, and obviously that would be very confusing for the wife. <laughs> so, so I, I want to warn against this sense of, well, I'll either struggle with one of these or the other. Eh, I don't think so. I'm afraid both are our problem. And here's the basic idea. Affectionless authority is going to ruin your marriage. Affectionless authority is going to ruin your marriage. Authoritative uh, 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 affection without authority is going to ruin your marriage. All right? So, again, back to Adam. Do not believe that affection is enough. You are, you are doing something right. You're, you're halfway there, let's say. But you are not exhibiting Christ-like leadership if you lack affection for your wife. You are not exhibiting Christ-like leadership if you lack authority. You're just not. You've got to have both. And really, I keep saying there's two doctrines, but the doctrine of one flesh and the doctrine of head is actually just talking about the same thing because the head is a part of the body. So you can have both of these doctrines just if you think about, this is my body. This person is my body. I, and also, I am the head. You get affection and authority out of those two pictures of the same basic idea. See, the head loves the body. When the body is hurting, when my body is hurting, it's my head that's telling me about it. And it won't shut up. Have, <laughs> this is a little bit of, I'm afraid this is a little bit of a, maybe you, I don't want you to know this about me. Have you ever fasted for like kind of a long period of time, like a few days? I don't know if you've, I don't know if you, anyone else has had this experience. Something really weird happens to me when I fast for a, a, a little bit, you know, like a few days. My brain has, I didn't know this was happening. My brain, the whole time I was going about my life as a non-faster, was storing up locations of fast food restaurants. Like places I've never even been. So like three days into a fast, my brain's like, you know, there's a Burger King over there. It's like, I didn't even know. I, didn't, I don't ever go to Burger King. Why, why, do you, why does my brain know there's a Burger King? Because my brain is paying attention to my body. 
My brain is actually telling me, hey, hey, you're, you need to eat. A, a head loves the body. A head, a head actually says if, if something's going to hurt them, and this is why headship is, we can see headship as the failure in Adam. When, when, when something's going to hurt the body, the head says what? Don't touch that. Don't touch that, right? And this is the, the headship failure we see. Full of affection, Adam was. Low in authority. So this is really what makes the leadership of Jesus so special. And I want to be clear right now on something that's, I mean, totally indicting on, it's not, it's, not, it's not indicting on men, but let's just be super clear. There are lots of women who would not want to be married to Jesus. And some of those women call themselves Christians. At least for now, they do. They won't always, probably. But there are plenty of women who are not interested in the affection authority thing. There, there are plenty of women who, in reality, would not sign up to marry Jesus. So we're talking about this. It's not, hey, let's be great men so that women will like us. No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. We're just saying, hey, let's be like Jesus. And let's let him figure out how the rest of that plays out in our lives. But Jesus is so special in this way. He exercises affectionate authority. And he exercises authoritative affection. He sees us as part of himself. He loves himself. Timothy tells us he cannot deny himself. And he also sees us as the body and him as the head. And he engages in authority. But never in any way does Jesus ever engage in authority that is uh, lacking full affection. But never in any way does Jesus ever engage, uh, display his affection that is lacking in full authority. In fact, when Jesus promises to take care of you, if he doesn't have affection, he doesn't give you the promise. But if he doesn't have authority, his promise is worth nothing. So this, this, this idea of these two husbandly sins, you know, the real solution, if, you, if it's the too long, don't read version of the sermon, I've been preaching for 15 minutes. I mean, the real solution is like, if you could just figure out how to do, let Jesus live through you and your husbanding in these two ways, you'd be, you'd be a black belt. You'd have it nailed. Like, if you could just let Jesus be authoritatively affectionate through you, you'd, you'd be there. You'd, we'd all be there. Another way to think about this is the Lord and Savior dynamic. So look at verse uh, 23, Ephesians 5, 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, I'm taking the phrase head and equating that with Lord. Because I'm seeing head as a, as a, as a head-lord authority kind of all, all in the same grouping. And then I'm seeing Savior as affection, as fondness, as love. And the thing is, is that this is all tricky because Jesus isn't two things. He's all of this. And it's all just one thing because this is just who Jesus is. But I'm trying to help us, you know, come up with a game plan, right? So you could say in some ways that the authority and affection thing is paralleled with the Lordship and Savior thing. And, and you, could, you could say that in some respects, a, good, a church can't be healthy with only one of those two things. And this has been tried. This is being tried this morning. 
there are churches that are, we maybe call them legalistic churches, that have a Lord but don't have a Savior. And there are churches that we might want to call therapeutic deist churches that have a Savior but they don't have a Lord. And these are not good, these are not, these are mutations, they're not churches, right? The, the, the relationship with Jesus depends, your relationship with Jesus, our church's relationship with Jesus, it depends on him being both Lord and Savior. It depends on him having perfect sympathy and patience and love for us, and also wisdom and authority and, and calling us to stuff. So, man, that's... That's what we need. That's what it means to be a good husband. And you can get all of that through the body metaphor. You can get all of that directly from Jesus. And I just want you to think about, from a wife's perspective, what lacking in one of those things feels like. Okay? Because I hear, I hear both sides on this. I think I, can, I think I can put on my feminine hat for a second and... And, and it just this is what I this is what I would routinely hear. So think about what it would mean if a wife is seeing a lack of affection and cherishing. So this is like something I would hear. My husband doesn't actually really show any proactive affection for me. He doesn't seem to cherish me. He doesn't seem to expend any mental energy trying to get to know me. So that would be stuff in the disregard category. That'd be stuff in the lack of affection category. But here's another category. My husband isn't really leading us anywhere. I frankly have no idea what we are supposed to be about. What's the vision? What's the goal? Submit to what exactly? That was the real problem with preaching last week's message alone. It's like, I don't think that the primary question in a church is, Willingness to submit. I think that the primary question when it comes to submission in marriage is like, what, what's the, what are we doing? Like, what, what, what am I submitting to? What's the plan? So these are Lord and Savior affection and authority problems. And now let's just talk about kind of how to act. Let's think about application. Because this text is pretty cool. And one, one of the ways this text is really cool is that Paul's not, um, he's not giving us the application at the end entirely. He's, he's, almost giving us one truth and one application, like a one-for-one one, all the way through the text. First point of application, I think I've got five, is men, husbands, be a proper head. Be a proper head. This text says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I think the thing that really gets missed in this passage is that it does not say that the husband and wife should come to agreement that the husband should start acting like the head. It doesn't tell the husband to start acting like the head. It says the husband is the head. The husband is the head. So you got to just take that and just like let that simmer for a second. I heard a pastor say one time that every once in a while when you're reading God's word, you should feel like Wiley e. Coyote does when he's in midair holding an anvil, you know, like, oh my goodness. 
You know, the text isn't saying, hey, men, hey, you should really start being the head. No, the text is saying that you have been the head all along. So this is that Wiley Coyote anvil moment, like, oh, great. You see, there are three kinds of men that will read this text. The first kind of man who reads this text, his mouth begins to water, salivating uh, over all the lording over that he's getting to do, you know. He's like, I just got a bully pass, and I love to be a bully. There's a second kind of man, though, who reads this and thinks, oh, my goodness, this is such an outdated and chauvinistic idea. I know better than God's word. Now, you can see that both of those are pride. They're just different kinds of pride. There's like, it's like a 1950s pride and a 2020 pride, I guess, you know. But there's a third way to read this, and it's the Wiley Coyote Anvil way. And I would just point you men, man, if you should go through and read uh, the account in, in First Chronicles and the account in First Kings of when Solomon receives the throne. And, and the basic thing that Solomon does when he receives the throne is he says, I am a child. And he says, who am I? To lead these people in and out. I don't know how to go in and out. You know, it's almost like I, I, I routinely push on doors that say pool. Like, I, I, like, you don't want to trust me with this, God, you know? Like, this, who am I? Just, just use your concordance and look up. Or just Google, who am I, Bible. And you'll see these moments where people receive a weighty call. And it is, man, a weighty call. It's the call to be affectionate and authoritative. It's the call to cherish and to nourish. So you are the head. The only question is, like, what kind of head you're going to be. Now, let's just be super clear what we mean by the head. Because what we're thinking of here is not necessarily volitional. It's just, it's even passive. <laughs> Back to the basement flooding story. This will be week two of the basement flooding story. And uh, this didn't flood again. I'm just remembering another part of the story. So I get down to the basement, and Martha and all the boys are, are working to clean up this terrible mess. And so I go into the HVAC room, and I really can't see. And so Martha's holding her phone, you know, to look at, like, with the light so that we can see this. And we're the same age, but I had this, I just asked her, like, hey, uh, do you feel like, you know, like you're a 12-year-old girl holding the flashlight for your dad? It's like, are you nervous? Like, does, does everybody remember when you held the flashlight for your dad? And, and some of you have PTSD from holding the flashlight for your dad. Now, we used to have this old blue Jeep CJ, 1987 blue Jeep CJ in my garage. And I was trying to repair it and so forth. And I would bring Wes into the garage. It wasn't very well lit. And I would be like, hold the flashlight here, you know. And he would hold the flashlight there. But the thing is, he's young and he's not super focused. And so eventually, he would start looking at other things in the room. And basically, the law is, this is the law of the flashlight. Let's call it the law of the flashlight. This is what headship is, is when you, you can for a second fool your dad. There's a, there's a period of time where at least for a few seconds, you can be looking over here and train that flashlight right on the carburetor and your dad doesn't even know that you're staring at a spider or something, right? But eventually, 
Guys, eventually, whatever the head's looking at, the hand follows. Another way to think about this is what I, what I learned to be the law of the motorcycle. I had a motorcycle for a pretty short period of time in my life. I'm not sure I have the attention span and focus to drive a motorcycle. I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking about getting another one. But, but I'm kind of accident prone. But, but a few days into owning this motorcycle, I was going pretty fast down like a, a river bottom road. You know, super flat, super straight. And I didn't really know that there were differences in motorcycle driving and, and, and car driving. But what I did was I saw like a deer in a field. And I'm like looking at this deer. Now, if you've ever ridden a motorcycle, you know a motorcycle is actually steered by your head. It is not steered by your hand. It's a mystery. I don't exactly know how it works. Maybe that's why I shouldn't have a motorcycle. But wherever your head is pointed... That motorcycle is going where your head is pointed. If you have to make a sharp turn or so on, you need to look to where you want to wind up or you will, you will die. And so I did almost die that day, and I blame the deer. It was too majestic. <laughs> so when we're talking about headship, we really want to think about those sorts of things. Men, simple. Where you look is where your family will go. That's it. What you're focused on is where the body goes. That's not because you're acting a certain way. That's just because you are what God says you are. So where should we look? Well, the easy school answer would be to look to Jesus. Like, that's true. But I would, I would press that further and say, look to heaven. Look to heaven. And I'm going to explain why I think that's maybe more actionable in this case than just to look to Jesus. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having been cleansed, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I think the idea here is, is that you as a husband, have this idea of getting your family successfully across the finish line of this life. When Jesus prays at the end of his ministry, he says, Father, I have kept all those you have given to me. You know, this, this idea of being the shepherd of your home. Well, where should you be looking if you want everyone to go there? You should be looking to the end. You should be looking to eternity. And here's, I want to talk about one particular way that you can go wrong here. I want to, Jesus did not pursue his bride's respect. And men, this is a super big temptation for us. Jesus did not chase his bride's respect. Jesus, he couldn't, right? Because there were times when his disciples had their minds on heavenly things and they reflexively respected Jesus. But there were times when they had their minds on earthly things and they struggled to respect Jesus. Jesus couldn't live for the respect of another human being because human beings, our wives, they aren't sinless. There are times when their minds are on heavenly things and there are times when their minds are on earthly things. And of course you and I know that we do 
want our wives to respect us. It's a huge deal to us. But we can't look to that. Because there are times when they aren't respecting the right things. And that's, ladies, I wouldn't beat yourself over, up over that. It's just, we're just all that way. But men are so programmed, especially men that have affection for their wives, they're so programmed to say, how can I help this woman respect me? It's like, well, don't go after it directly. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus and keep your eyes focused on heaven. There's a third reason. Um, there's a third reason why this matters. And that is Christ likely, this is number three, look to eternity for your reward. Christ like leadership is so valuable and so costly that it simply cannot be appropriately compensated in this life alone. This is huge to me. This is a huge, this might be one of the basics of my pastoral perspective. Christ-like ministry is so valuable and it is so costly that it can never be appropriately rewarded in this life alone. Let me talk about why I said valuable. So in a just world, value is exchanged equitably. I give you something and you give me something of equal return, of equal value in return. So I have a tomato farm and you have a potato farm and we swap tomatoes and potatoes or tomatoes and potatoes uh, in proportionate value. But here's the thing. There are some things that just can't be paid back. And Christ-like leadership, the value of it, it's basically beyond measure. It, it does too much good to ever be appropriately compensated. And if you're looking around in this world for the reward for Christ-like leadership, it doesn't exist. There's not enough. There's not enough here to reward. That's how valuable Christ-like leadership is. It's literally priceless. Can't put a number on it. Add to this that sinners just tend to sometimes take it for granted at best and at worst resent it. And choosing to be a Christ-like leader is just means you just can't look to this world for your reward. And, and I haven't talked about how costly Christ-like leadership is. Christ-like leadership is also very costly. It involves a great amount of self-denial and anonymous service and sacrifice. In fact, true Christ-like leadership, if we're really talking truly Christ-like leadership, it costs us everything. Anyone who wants to be my disciple, let him take up his cross and follow me. And here's the thing, because it's so costly, this life does not offer the resources to compensate someone for consistent Christ-like leadership. So if you want to be a Christ-like husband today, let's say, but don't keep your eyes focused on heaven, by Wednesday you will grow resentful. See, there's another kind of leadership that actually seeks its reward here. And you can do that one because it's of little value. So if people give you a little, you've got more than you deserve. And it doesn't sacrifice much. In fact, earthly leadership with the world of, with the eyes of reward in this world just takes from everybody else. But if you want to be a Christ-like leader today, 
you've got to keep your eyes on heaven on Wednesday, or else by Thursday you're going to start saying, what am I doing all this for? I've sped the timeline up a little bit. It's usually more than three days, the gap. But you get my point. Let me show you a passage in Scripture that illustrates this for pastors, but it's really no different. The math is no different than it is for any other kind of leader. So look at 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Focus forward, pastors. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, because that's not Christ-like leadership, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, because that would be less costly and easy and you know, so on. Now, what's the, what's the promise here? If you do this, if you pull this off, being examples to the flock, what's the promise? Verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's change this passage to talk to husbands. So I exhort the husbands among you as a fellow husband and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Exercise affection and authority over your household. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain. Don't, don't rig the system so it makes you better, it makes you richer, it makes you more comfortable. Don't use these texts that way. Use them like Jesus uses them. Not domineering over those in your charge, but be an example to the flock. And when the chief husband appears, right? When? When does this pay off? Does this pay off with kids that always do what I say? Does this pay off with no rebellious children? Does this pay off with the godliest wife ever who, who, who can cook and is like sexually voracious and you know everything else wonderful? This pays off when the chief husband appears. And you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Next. Everything you need to know about husbanding is packed into the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 31. Back in Ephesians 5, verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. When Paul says... This mystery is profound. I believe he's saying there's a lot more here that I am able to go into right now. Look up this, look into this further. And what I think he's saying is, is that if you want to understand what husbanding is, look to the leaving and cleaving actions of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. What did he leave? Well, Paul says in the Corinthians that, that he left the wealth of heaven to become poor so that we might become rich. But he didn't leave everything. There's an old saying that I learned growing up. I won't credit the person who probably said this. To, I don't want them to feel bad. But I remember hearing when I was younger this saying. You could take the boy out of the trailer park, but you can't take the trailer park out of the boy. 
No. <laughs> you, you, could take, you could take someone out of their native habitat, but you can't take the native habitat out of the person. What does it mean that Jesus leaves and cleaves? Well, this is the idea. You can take Jesus out of heaven, but you can't take heaven out of Jesus. He came here, took the form of a servant, but kept the mind of a king, kept the heart of a king. See, this is again where that affection and authority comes into play. Jesus left and he cleaved, but there were things he did not leave. He did not leave his love for the Father. He did not leave his eternal orientation. And if he had, all the affection in the world from Jesus would have been no good. He was the perfect lever and cleaver. And guys, I think that the way that maybe we summarize this and talking about the incarnation would be something like this. Jesus had the form of a servant with the heart of a king. He had the form of a servant with the heart of a king. And I actually think that would be another way of talking about black belt husbanding. And by form, I don't mean faking, faking it like some of us do when we load the dishwasher once and tell our wives about it three times. I mean like be a servant, but have the heart of Christ the king. Finally, Here's the, the last point of application I think it means when we're talking about being this affectionate authority figure, and that is be the why guy. Be the why guy. So leadership involves the why, the what, the when, the how, right? Leading involves all those things. Almost all abusive leadership happens when people overemphasize the what, the when, and the how. And young husbands, this is where you can get yourself into a lot of trouble because you're going to be out driving your wisdom headlights. The decision about what house to buy or what car to buy or, or what college to go to or, or so on and so forth, these are what decisions? These are how decisions? These are when decisions. And the problem with making those decisions in an authoritative way is the world is just highly complex. And the future is extremely unforeseeable. And so trying to be a leader primarily in the what's is basically telling people what to do, right? Trying to be a leader in the wins is sort of like telling people what to do, so on. These are elements of leadership. We see that in Jesus. But mostly, most importantly, and this is where a young husband can be an excellent husband, the most effective form, the most needed form of leadership in your home is for you to be the guy who's always asking, what's the reason we're doing this? It's to always be looking to my family's motives because it's, it's an expression of your headship where you're asking, are we looking to eternity in this decision or that decision? Most of the trouble, most of the domineering comes not from asking why a lot, because that's extremely helpful, if not somewhat annoying. It's from being overly confident in the particulars of day-to-day -day decisions that, in honesty, may exceed your actual capacity. So, I would just advise, like Jesus, because we see Jesus doing all these things, why, when, how, so forth, what. We see all of that, but we do see the baseline of Jesus' care for the church is not highly 
granular, this, 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 this. It's broad strokes. It's big ideas. It's all about the why. So the truth is, if you can become good at being a why guy, you're going to be an above average husband. And you could do that your first year of marriage. This is not a age dependent thing. You can be good at being a why guy right away. Experience matters much more on the what's and the wins and the how's. And I would advise, especially our young, our young husbands, this is where you need to go ask people for help. When, when, when it comes to the what should we do and the when should we do it and so on, that's where you want to lean on others um, and be careful not to throw down the submission card on those issues. That's, that's not where you want to use that. You want to be serving your family by always helping your family to remember why are we here? What are we about? Why does God have us in this moment? Be the why guy. That's, that's basically the most valuable kind of service any husband can do and certainly the most valuable kind of service that a young husband can do. Well, I want to uh, close us with reading what we read last week also, Isaiah 53. And I, I want to introduce communion again by showing us this form of a servant, Jesus Christ, who had, uh, what should we say? He had the hands of a slave and the heart of a king. He had the, he had the form of a servant that went all the way down but he had the heart of a king. Who has believed, Isaiah 53, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would, first and foremost, because we have people here that aren't husbands, and we have people here who aren't married. Lord, we just pray that Jesus would just shine through this text, and we would see, we would believe. God, I pray for this for everybody in this room, that everybody in this room would understand that if he has saved them, if he has made them new, he has caused them to be born again in him. He has full affection for them. And that affection is joined with proper authority. He has a plan for us. He has things we want to be about. He is our Lord and our Savior. So Lord, I pray that if anybody's here today and they don't know Jesus as their leader who's, who's died for them. They don't treat Jesus like a Lord and a Savior. If anyone, just Lord, through your Holy Spirit, do work, transform their hearts, help them to see the real Jesus. Lord, I pray this in particular for the husbands in the room. Help us to see Jesus. Lord, transform what we think of as husbanding by helping us to see and hope in the head, the chief husband. And Lord, now as we partake of communion, celebrating your costly sacrifice for us, I pray, God, that you would bless this time, allow your goodness to be sensed and known as we partake of the cup and the bread. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you're here today,